want to begin with a quote by this guy, Stanley Fish. He says, each of us occupies a partial time-bound perspective, and none of us has access to the God's eye view from which the big picture might be seen at a glance. Therefore, any statement any of us makes is an argument because, as an assertion that proceeds from an angle, it can always be, and almost always will be, challenged by those whose vision is also angled, but differently so. Conflict, not agreement, is the default condition of mortality. What a quote. Everything that we perceive, we're perceiving from a particular angle and vantage point. And when we say something and somebody else hears it, they're probably going to disagree with us because they're looking at the same thing from a different angle or vantage point. That's the normal spot that we're all in. None of us has a God's eye view of the big picture that can be seen as a glance, at a glance. How does that make you feel? Well, maybe you feel like uh, this guy's annoying and I do have a God's eye view on what's going on and everyone needs to listen to me. Or maybe you're feeling like, well, then I can't say anything about anything because I only have a slice of it. Uh, wherever you might fall on that, probably you need to move towards the center and say, okay, God, God gives us his word, and God gives us a description of the world from multiple angles, and we need to take what he's given us and bring it together, and then come together with other people who are looking at things from different angles, and perhaps both of us will be helped by that. Um, I think yesterday at the workday, there were probably multiple good examples of this, where there are multiple people working on something, looking at it from different angles, and then both of them can bring their knowledge together and, and have a bigger picture as they go. I think that principle kind of goes, goes to work in our lives as Christians as we seek to navigate these issues of conscience. So I've talked about conscience not as Jiminy Cricket that guides you, not as an angel that's arguing with the devil on the other's shoulder, but it's you involved in moral reasoning. You've been influenced by a lot of things, by pastors, teachers, family, your culture, your experiences, and you bring all of that to the table when you're navigating any decision, especially decisions that are not particularly clear or addressed directly in the Bible. So I've tried to suggest that we need to, when we encounter uh, encounter disputed issues, try to categorize them so we can reason more accurately uh, with our consciences. So category one issues are those things that are permitted but not required. So we looked at Romans 14 and 15. Here God says, you can do this explicitly, but you don't have to do it. Um, You're not required to eat pork, but you can eat pork. There's explicit permission. Well, most of the debated matters that we talk about, God hasn't explicitly said yes, you can do this, or no, you can't do that. Um, So I don't know what the most disputed matter would be that you encounter every day. Uh, One of them that I encountered in college uh, was the brands of clothes that we were or were not allowed to wear. So we couldn't have the Hollister Eagle on our clothes. We weren't allowed to wear Hollister clothes at my school. And um, God never actually explicitly permitted us to wear Hollister clothes, so it doesn't quite fit into that category of disputed matters. You see what I'm saying? 
Um, that's kind of a dumb example, but going to movie theater was another one. God never explicitly said, yes, you may go to movie theater. Uh, it's just not in this category of disputed issues. So we should be careful that we don't directly apply Romans 14 and 15 to those things, because that's not what Paul was talking about. The same is true with category two issues. This we looked at 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And there I suggested that these don't really count as disputed issues because everyone at Corinth was happy to go into the idol temple and eat idol meat. No one was arguing about whether or not they should do this. Paul was telling them, you're disobeying the Jerusalem council and my teaching, so you shouldn't go do this. Um, The way that it kind of factors into disputed matters is that the Bible sometimes permits things in one instance and not in another. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul made clear that sexual relationships aren't wrong. It's sexual relationship with a prostitute that's wrong. So in that situation, it's prohibited. In marriage, it's permitted. Um, Idol meat. You can eat meat of any kind in the marketplace and in your home, but you can't eat it in an idol temple. It's situationally restricted. So this week, we get into category three and four. We're going to cover two categories today. Um, we'll spend most of our time looking at category three issues, things that the Bible addresses in principle and that the Bible gives us wisdom or prudence to navigate, but does not give direct commands. So that's category three things. This is where most of our disputed matters show up. We'll talk for about three minutes about category four disputed issues, things that are driven by personality and preference, because the Bible doesn't really talk about these. You know, the Bible doesn't really get into this that much, but we just have to recognize the reality that sometimes when we're disagreeing with people, it's not because we're disagreeing about how to apply principles from the Bible or exercising prudence. It's just that we have a preference and we really want that particular thing. So I'll give you two really dumb examples of that. Um, And I'm sorry that they're so dumb, but they, they are what they are. But We'll, we'll look at them. Maybe it will shed a light on how we sometimes do that. Okay, category three, principles and prudence. So the Bible provides principles that guide our actions without dictating precisely how we ought to act. It doesn't tell us what decision we should make in every instance, what action we should take. It can't do that because the Bible's historically and culturally bound. Uh, it can't think of the situations that we want to think of. So, but it does address a lot of life's issues with principles. So I'm going to quote here from the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which the the Baptists just took everything from the Westminster Confession of Faith and plagiarized it and switched up some things about baptism and a couple other things because Presbyterians and Baptists are the same people. They just put baptism at a different time. They, They believe almost the same thing. There are some other differences, but the The London Baptist Confession of Faith could rip off almost everything out of the Westminster, this Presbyterian Confession of Faith, because we're saying the same thing about a lot of issues. This relates back to our doctrine class, but I just want to remind you, in case when you leave today, you run into one of those Presbyterians who, you know, think so differently from us. Um, they, They both say, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in Scripture. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, 
common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. All that they're saying is the Bible doesn't speak to you every situation, but the Bible informs our moral reasoning so that we can navigate every situation. There's prudence that we need to draw upon. So this guy, John Frame, comments on this. The fact that scripture doesn't mention abortion or nuclear war or financial disclosure or parking meters, therefore, does not mean that we may abandon scripture in considering these issues. There is always a principle of scripture that is relevant. The only question is, specifically, how does that principle apply? Recourse to natural revelation and human prudence can help answer that question. So I agree with John Frame that we need to bring the Bible to bear on every situation we face, but it doesn't mean that just because we're bringing the Bible to bear that we're doing it rightly. We, we might be wrongly applying principles of the Bible. Uh, we'll talk about that a bit more as we go, but I, I don't want us to get into a spot where we say the Bible has nothing to say about the new situations that we're facing. I think the Bible doesn't address it directly, but it does have stuff to say that informs our moral reasoning. So we need to know the Bible really well, and we need to, to enter into the story of the Bible and uh, see how that would reshape the story of our own lives. The reality, though, is that as Christians draw upon principles of Scripture as they face these new situations that Jesus and the apostles didn't face, we might apply principles of the Bible differently. More than that, we have to recognize that every single one of us have different life contexts. We share a lot in common, but also there's different things about each of us, and so we might not apply the same principles in exactly the same way. I think that you know this for all of you who have children, is you're dealing with your different children. They have different personalities and issues, and you might apply the same principle from Scripture, training up a child in the way that he should go in different ways. So when you're like disciplining one child, you might know to the discipline that will help this child is to ground them, the, you know, to get them away from other people. But for another kid, actually to ground them would to give them exactly what they want, which is to be away from everyone else. They, they don't want to be around other people. So you understand that the way you apply that instruction will look differently depending on who you're dealing with, the situation and circumstances that you're in. So we need to exercise wisdom and prudence. Uh, That's what I'm trying to get into here. As we do that, though, we have to guard against elevating our application of a biblical principle to the level of Scripture itself. I think every one of us can be tempted to say, the biblical way of doing blank is, and we fill in how we did it in that one instance. And I think the longer that we live, the more we look back on parts of our life where we encounter a different situation and we're like, oh, I don't think that I should have done it that way, even though I was saying that was the biblical way to do it. Well, we can't um, in, you know, label our application of Scripture with the same authority as Scripture itself. And we shouldn't expect that other people treat our application of Scripture on par with Scripture. Does this, does this make sense? Okay. Um, there is no perfect formula for producing the most prudent course of action in any given situation. There isn't a machine that God gave us where we can take principle plus situation and then crank it and hit a dial and then it spits out the exact answer. You know, that's not how it works. We have to reason carefully. We have to uh, seek the leading of the Spirit. We have to read the Bible. 
Um, so I want to talk in particular about three areas as it relates to principles of scripture, prudence, and navigating moral decision-making. First, I want to talk about the role of wisdom literature in the Bible. Second, about the role of biblical interpretation in the extraction of biblical principles. And then third, the role of the Holy Spirit in moral decision-making. Number one, the role of wisdom. So I think you all know that we try to identify the genre of any given biblical text as we interpret it. And there's this whole genre of scripture called wisdom literature. So you can think of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. But there are wisdom literature genres imported into other larger genres. So James has a lot of proverbial statements in it. It's kind of wisdom literature. Paul has this. All over the New Testament, Jesus does this in his parables. There, there are hints of wisdom literature that show up in a variety of places. And as we hear those pieces of wisdom literature, we need to hear them rightly. First, wisdom literature needs to be distinguished from the law and the prophets in the Old Testament and the commands and specific instructions in the New Testament. So this guy contrasts wisdom literature and other types of biblical writings. He says the law commands... Wisdom advises, warns, persuades. The law stands on the foundation of God's authority and his covenant requirements. Wisdom speaks from experience and points out the probable results. The law points a finger directly in your face and just tells you what to do. Wisdom puts an arm around your shoulder and urges you to think twice. So as we encounter, encounter Proverbs and otherwise sayings, we can't make one of them operate as law. That, that's not how it works. And you can see how people do this incorrectly. Um, I think one, one way that this can happen, I was, you know, years ago talking to someone who said that any, if any, a Christian has debt of any kind, they're living in sin. Well, they're, they're reading a verse about the debtor becoming a servant to the master and turning it into law. And, and they're not recognizing there's a movement from one economic system to another economic system. They're not recognizing that this is um, a wise saying. Hey, if you get into a ton of debt, you're going to be a slave to that guy till you get it paid off. And a prohibition, never um, take on debt. So you, you see how we can confuse law and wise sayings. Um, Explicit biblical commands need to be distinguished from wise guidance. Biblical commands say, thus says the Lord. Wisdom literature says, listen to my, listen to my advice. And, and you have to listen to more than just that one piece of advice. So consider, for example, this instruction for relating to foolish people. In some instances, you should not engage with a fool or else you'll become like him. That's Proverbs 23, 4. In Proverbs 23, 5, you're instructed that you should engage with a fool to keep him from progressing in arrogance. Well, if we just take one wise saying from the Bible and make that the only thing God has to say about it, we're going to ignore other things that God has to say. So this leads into the second point. Prudential guidance in the Bible is articulated systematically and partially in pixelated form. So as we just observed, one piece of guidance cannot be taken in isolation. Each individual piece contributes to a larger picture. So this guy, Drew Johnson, explains, just as one pixel participates in assembling the image being displayed on a screen, the arguments of Scripture are broached and reified in various locations across Scripture. To see this whole second-order pattern emerge, one must step back and take in the whole image, which necessarily includes each discrete pixel. 
So you have to look at all of it to get the picture of wisdom. You can't look at just one part. Um, so if you have watched my favorite movie, Megamind, when the journalist lady is trying to figure out what the big plan is and everything is hanging in, in this guy's living room, she has to step back and then it all comes into view. You see all these little pieces that make up the one big plan. Well, the Bible is kind of like that, actually, where you have to step back and take all of it into consideration or else you're just going to get hung up on one little part. I think what this means then, well, let me get to that in a second. Uh, so I grew up being told, read a proverb a day. There are 31. God made it that way, so you can read one every single day. Well, if you only read Proverbs, you're going to get part of God's wisdom for life, and you're going to miss a lot of other important pieces. So Proverbs works like this. Here are guidelines for life. Follow them, and your life will be long and happy. And Job and Ecclesiastes say, we did, and it isn't. You know, they, they show us that things are not always as they seem to be. And if you are a Proverbs-driven person, you're going to be frustrated because you're only getting one part of God's wisdom. You need the Job's and the Ecclesiastes as well. And I think this should indicate to us that we need other Christians as well as we navigate these moral decisions. We, we can only think about so much at one time, and we, don't, we only know so much of the Bible. So we should talk with other Christians as we seek to make wise and prudential decisions in these disputed matters. Third, the appropriate use of wisdom literature then requires discernment. We must avoid appropriating wise sayings from the Bible for every circumstance. So we can't make one saying fit every situation. It's like putting, you know, the, the peg in a square, right? These, these things just don't work. And if we do that, we'll misuse the Bible and misrepresent God's divine wisdom. How many pastors and Christians have counseled one another and concealed the wisdom of God instead of revealed that as they quoted scripture. Well, that's exactly what Job and his friends did. Job's friends thought they knew what was going on. They thought they diagnosed Job's situation. Uh, you sinned against God, and that's why you're not prospering anymore. Well, they don't know what we got to see at the front of the book, which is that God is dealing with other things that are bigger than Job and his friends. And so then at the end of that story, when Job talks to God, or, and, or God talks to Job, he rebukes Job and his friends for concealing his counsel while saying things that we might find in other parts of Scripture. So sometimes we can use God's counsel wrongly and we conceal his wisdom. Well, that's a problem. And, and I think probably in disputed matters, this happens quite frequently. All right. When we're applying wisdom from the Bible for these disputed matters, I think it usually requires a progression that starts with a, yes, the Bible says this, but the Bible also says, so this is the next step forward. So we have to analyze the Bible and all that it brings to the table. We need to analyze our situation. And as we, you know, if you want to be fancy, we can talk about this as dialogical decision-making, where you enter into a dialogue with the various parts of Scripture, and you allow each voice to speak into your life as you try to navigate a, a situation. Um, so we, we've had this situation where there's this guy who keeps showing up at our church that I keep talking to, and I keep thinking about those two verses from Proverbs. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or else you kind of stoop down and, and you dumb yourself down and become just as foolish. But also, answer a fool according to his folly so he won't continue in his arrogance and ignorance. 
Well, as I'm trying to like figure out how do I relate to this guy who's eating up a lot of my time, but also needs to the Lord and help, but also is being foolish, like I need to enter into the dialogue with these different parts of Scripture and moment by moment and day by day allow that to direct my engagement with that guy every time I encounter him. I don't think we can grab onto one wise saying and even at one conclusion and say, this is the way I should operate with this guy every time or with anyone else who might seem like him anytime they show up. We have to, it's more dialogical and dynamic. Does this make sense? Okay. All right. So let's talk about the role of biblical interpretation then. We got into a little bit with thinking about how to deal with wisdom literature, but I think it's also important for us to think about biblical interpretation as a whole because very often we do what liberal theologians do. We read the Bible and we strip it of its history and culture and just try to find this timeless truth or principle and then plug that into our lives however we want to do that. Liberal theologians started doing that with Jesus. Let's strip away his incarnation. We don't care about the Christ of history. He probably didn't, uh, the Jesus of history. We just want the Christ of faith. We want to believe in a spiritual resurrection. Let's just get to the principle of who Jesus is and then like be spiritual. Well, Christians can do that with the Bible. We try to strip it of its incarnational properties, its history and context, and we just try to grab a principle that we can plug and play wherever we want it to be. Well, even though that seems like a godly way of reading the Bible, let me apply it to my life, it's actually a postmodern reader-oriented approach to the Bible, and it's a liberal theologian approach to the Bible that infiltrates conservative churches without us knowing it. Well, I want to warn us against that. I want to remind you that everything in the Bible is culturally located. Um, So sometimes Christians like to say, well, we don't have to obey that command because that's just a cultural thing. Well, the whole Bible is a cultural thing. Those guys were not writing the Bible outside of their culture. They were not floating up to heaven and considering every culture and then writing parts of the Bible for all cultures and all places and all times for direct application, and some just for their culture that they were in. So it's wrong for us to say, let me read the Bible and try to find the transcultural principle um, and dismiss anything that I think is just culturally relative. The biblical authors were happy to be countercultural and critique their culture. So imagine if in any of Paul's churches, they were like, oh, Paul, what you're saying, you're, that might be good for another culture, but it's not good for our culture. Um, let's dismiss that, you know, apply that to the Jews in Jerusalem, not to us Romans. You know, we, we have a different culture. Don't you understand? Now, I realize that I'm opening a little bit of a can of worms here, but I want to give you a, a really brief thought experiment. When you read the text where Paul tells you, greet one another with a holy kiss, What's your inclination when you apply that text? I bet it's to say, oh, that's just cultural. We don't don't greet each other with kisses here, so let's, let's remove that from the list of things we need to obey. Why? Why can you be the judge that your culture can't be critiqued by Paul? And why are you the judge that your culture is better than theirs in that we shouldn't adopt that in our own culture? I think these are hard questions we don't like to answer. And this is the burden of biblical interpretation. Now, I think there's a way forward here that doesn't necessarily end up with us kissing each other on Sunday. 
But I want to push you to think about that. Um, why is it that you're so willing, and I'm saying you, I include me, why is it that you're so willing to dismiss certain commands of the Bible based on your cultural preference? When Paul often critiqued the culture and had Christians live counterculturally, why is it that we designate some things as too countercultural, kissing one another with a holy kiss when we greet each other on Sunday, but then on other things we want to be rigidly countercultural? Um, same sex marriage is sinful. You, you see how we sometimes pick and choose what we want to apply, and that's a problem. That's a problem because the whole Bible is culturally located. Distinguishing between transcultural and culturally bound texts proves problematic because of the incorrect assumption that some or most scriptures are transcultural while some are not. If by transcultural we mean we man, we mean timeless, abstracted truth, we have not taken seriously the cultural location of all the books of the Bible. By ins insisting that scripture comes to us as timeless, abstracted truth, we lose sight of the historical particularity of its origins. We lose sight of its incarnational categories. Okay, I probably opened a can of worms that requires a Bible class on biblical interpretation, and I hope to offer that class starting in January. Um, but I, I just want to push you, when you're reading your Bible, to start to recognize where you might be dismissing things or applying things, not based on what the biblical authors are intending, but based on your own comfort zones. Um, so here's maybe what I would say. Our application of scripture should not be based on privileging our culture over that of other cultures, those in which the biblical texts are written. Instead, we need to carefully interpret the Bible, working to understand what the biblical authors are doing with their instructions, rather than considering what they are saying as a cultural artifact. So that belongs to them, it doesn't belong to me. We need to understand the author's communicative intent and his desired response to guard against either ignoring biblical commands or misappropriating them. We must first work to contextualize their instructions and then recontextualize them in our own cultural locatedness. However we apply biblical texts, our application must be coherent with the whole pattern of meaning in the original context. We must ask if there is adequate coherence, a significant sense of it, between the original meaning and its context and its recontextualization for another setting. Um, so what I'm trying to say here is every parent has talked to their kids and given them an instruction, and if the kid only hears that one line and they rigidly stick to it, or they find a way to rationalize out of it, and you talk to them later, you might be like, you totally missed what I was getting at. Um, you just need to like, get the sense of what I'm doing with my speech, not trying to precisely figure out what I'm saying. So when, you're, when you leave to go on your date and your older kids are at home and you're like, okay, I want your bedrooms clean by the time we get back. I don't want a single scrap of trash on your floor. Like, I want your room to be clean. And you come home and your kid is like, well, I picked up every little piece of garbage, but I left all of my laundry on the floor. Well, <laughs> you see how what you're doing with your speech is more important than the particular specific instructions that you say. What you're doing is trying to get your kid to straighten up his room, even though with your speech you might give very particular instructions that are intended to represent a larger reality. Well, I would say, you know, to put our brains at rest on this, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'd say if we did historical cultural background studies and we learned that the people to whom Paul was writing, their culture didn't greet each other with a holy kiss, we would need to start doing that. 
because he was trying to get them to do something not common in their culture. I think what he's doing is saying, man, in Rome, there are like three kinds of kisses that people do when they greet each other, some on the lips, some on the cheek, um, and I want you guys to greet each other with a holy kiss. Like, I want you to have appropriate relationships with one another that are warm and welcoming, but not wrongly sexualized. So we want to get onto what Paul is doing, and we can only do that if we recontextualize what he's saying first, hear it in that context, and then figure out, okay, well, how does that apply to us? Like, what do we do with that then? Well, we greet each other in non-sexually driven ways, but warm and affectionate ways as family members. So we, we have to recontextualize, contextualize. Um, all right. Not only is every biblical command culturally situated, every command is also covenantally situated. So when we apply the Bible and we're reading the Old Testament, we need to be aware that we're not part of the Old Covenant and therefore not responsible to obey the Old Covenant laws. We're part of the new covenant, so we're responsible to live by the new covenant commands. So I agree with this guy, Tom Schreiner, who argues that the laws of the Old Testament are not authoritative as stipulations of the old covenant since that covenant has passed away. Although the old covenant laws are relevant for Christians, they're not binding. Instead, we're bound by the law of Christ, which is to be identified as love. So the old covenant, with its law to guide our behavior, has passed away. Jesus has obtained a new covenant for us that comes with new covenant legislation. So I think sometimes this debate about disputed matters, if, if we could agree on this, that we're not living under the law of the old covenant, we're living under the law of the new covenant, then we wouldn't have as many issues. Um, so let me give you an example. Sabbath observance. So um, some people are Sabbatarians. You cannot do any recreational activity on the Sabbath. Well, the church I grew up at had this in our statement of faith, and um, I grew up believing that that's how it should be. So I thought, no work, no recreation. Well, then when my dad would tell me to go mow the lawn on Sunday afternoon, I thought he was making me sin against God because I believed that I had to live under the legislation found in the, the Old Testament. Well, that if I... Now, as I understand it, I can mow the lawn on Sunday and play ping pong with Josh after the service. That's, that's totally fine. Um, and that whole disputed issue wouldn't be as disputed if we were operating in these categories. Now, some people will say, um, unless the New Testament explicitly does away with one of the commands in the Old Testament, we still have to follow it. That would still be right. So I was listening to a guy who wrote this book and has a radio program, and he was advocating that Christians should advocate for the death penalty for any homosexual relationship that we see, because the New Testament authors didn't explicitly take the death penalty away. Well, I think that's the wrong way of reading the Old Testament. That's Old Covenant legislation for a nation. That's not New Testament directives. I think the better way to look at it is to say, if the New Testament authors reaffirm something in the Old Covenant legislation, it's binding, not because it was part of the Old Covenant legislation, but because it's part of the New Covenant legislation. So there might be overlap, and we should expect that because God is the God of both covenants. But his rules for the New Covenant community is for the church, not for a nation state. So there are differences. Does that make sense? Okay, um, Tim. That's fine. I did already.
Yeah. Yeah. So what about the Sermon on the Mount? Tim, you sound like a guy who went to seminary for a little bit. Um, Yeah, it's debated, but this is what I want to say. Maybe Jesus was only speaking to Jews in that moment, but he's re-giving the law. He's pictured as a new Moses on the Mount, giving a new law, just as Israel got that law before or after they went into the Promised Land. Before. Well, now he's giving a a law right before he brings into the the kingdom. Um, And then now it's for Gentiles as well, as it's recorded in the Christian Bible, you know, so it's for us, yeah. Um, I've given you a little chart with Exodus and Ephesians where I just show you that the New Testament authors thought of themselves as giving new covenant legislation in parallel in replacing the old covenant legislation. Um, I use this example just because I recently preached through Ephesians here, so you're already familiar with it. But the instructions in Ephesians 4 through 6, these are like new covenant laws, the commands of Christ that are not burdensome. Um, And they're all really connected to the command to love, which Paul in Galatians says is the fulfillment of all laws, right? Um, Okay, I want to give this brief excursus, though, of the what would Jesus do question. Um, I don't know if you ever had one of those awesome 90s wristbands, the WWJD things. I was not allowed to wear one of those because boys shouldn't wear bracelets. Uh, but I had one on my Bible cover. So my, my little Bible case, that was super cool for every kid in the 90s to get a Bible case for the like $5 Bible. And you'd carry that thing around and mine said WWJD on it. I, when we face disputed matters and complicated questions, I don't think it's bad for us, us to ask, what would Jesus do? I think that's a fine question if we limit it to all that it can do for us. So I want to give four reasons why it's not that helpful of a question or four reasons why it would be problematic. Uh, so I was recently introduced to a book called The Tattooed Jesus that kind of gets into this a little bit. And and these reasons will prove why that's not helpful. First, Jesus lived under the old covenant law, a law that he obeyed completely. So in other words, Jesus' manner of life doesn't prove especially helpful when it comes to the particulars of obedience in our covenant context, because Jesus did and didn't do a great number of things that we're not called to do or not to do. Um, So I think it's probably pretty well argued that Jesus didn't eat bacon. He, He followed kosher food laws. Well, when we think about our food laws, we don't need to ask what would Jesus do based on what he did in his life. That's, that's just not helpful. This guy in the book asks if Jesus would get a tattoo of Leviticus 19.28 on his thigh. That's the first prohibiting marking your body and getting tattoos for the dead. You know, so I think he's misinterpreting that text and, he, you know, he's being really silly. No one's going to get that tattooed on them unless they're just being dumb. Um, but setting aside the point, he's trying to argue that all tattoos are sinful because it's included in the Old Testament law. Jesus didn't get a tattoo, therefore no one should get tattoos. Well, that's just not helpful because of the cultural issue of what tattoos did there. That's like very pagan, and maybe we could argue that that's becoming more the case now, or in certain places it would be. Um, So maybe some missionaries shouldn't get tattoos given their context. But in America, no one's thinking you're a Wiccan because you have a tattoo on your arm. Maybe someone in here does. I don't know. 
Actually, I know. Um, but but it, you see, you can't just ask, what would Jesus do? That, that doesn't help because of that covenantal context. It also doesn't help because of the cultural context. I guess I'm talking about both, both of these things at once. Jesus lived in a different culture. Um, and if we're going to take his humanity and historicity seriously, we need to remember that he lived in a time and place that's not our own. So we shouldn't try to look exactly like Jesus. There's a reason we all aren't wearing, all of us men aren't wearing robes to church and sandals, because we're not Jesus in Palestine. Third, our conceptions of Jesus might not be accurate, and Jesus might be more interesting than you think. Jesus might be more of a Renaissance man, we might say, than, than you would imagine. So someone might suggest that Jesus would never do blank, because they're only imagining a hermit Jesus. They're thinking only of Christ fasting in the desert. Instead of the celebratory Jesus, who came eating and drinking and was accused of spending time with sinners and being a drunk and a glutton. Like, you know, like you might have a picture of one part of Jesus's life in your mind and not the whole Jesus. Well, we need the whole Christ to uh, lead us into Christ's likeness. We don't want to grab onto just the part of Christ. And I think that's helpful for us to recognize that Christ adopted different manners of being. Sometimes he was more indulgent, we might say, and sometimes he was more ascetic. So it might be good for us in our lives to be a little more indulgent at times and praise God for these things that we have, while also becoming more ascetic at times and actually fasting. You know, like, I think that would be a better guide for us than identifying and isolating one piece of Jesus as our guide. Fourth, our mission and calling are not the same as Jesus's earthly mission and calling, um, so we can't do everything that Jesus did, and we will do some things he didn't do. Josh reminded me Jesus never got married. He didn't purchase a home. He never wrote a book. Think about that. Jesus never wrote a book or a commentary. Well, we don't want to ask, well, would Jesus do this? Well, he didn't, you know, so that's not the best guide. All right, very quickly, the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us, guides us. We should pray for that. We should want that, but we should avoid saying that God tells us to do something or that God puts his stamp of approval on our decisions when that might not be the case. This guy, Greg Allison, gives some good guiding directions. I think the ultimate test is, does the decision you make and does what you think God is leading you to do help cultivate the fruits of the Spirit in your life? And if so, I think we're safe to say, I think God approves of this and perhaps is leading me to do this. If it doesn't, then we should be careful that we don't put God's stamp of approval on it. So if it brings about greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, I think God would put his stamp of approval on it. If not, we should not do that. All right, very briefly, personality and preference. I don't, I don't even have time to get into this. All I want to say here is that very often we, we make decisions based on our personalities and preference, and we say it's based on prudence and principles of Scripture. And, and there is a line between the two that I hope you'll see in my examples, but don't assign God's stamp of approval to your personality, your preference, and don't go to war with somebody over it. So here's a case study of carpet choices, all right, um, for a church. You know, we might need to get new carpet in here someday. A decision about the right carpet falls into multiple categories. There are prohibited options, okay? Um, you cannot install a carpet that has a pornographic image screen printed onto it. I told you this is dumb. But there, there are kinds of carpet that God does not want in churches. Okay, so we can say there are prohibited options. There are prudential options. 
um, th- th- that might violate the prudence and principles of Scripture. So if you buy the most plush carpet and most, you know, expensive part carpet possible, and you stop giving to missions, and you cut your staff budgets in half so you can reroute your budget to get the best carpet on planet Earth, it seems like that violates the principles of Scripture and prudence. Um, if you screen-printed uh, the Vikings logo in the middle and then had alternating squares of purple and gold, that just doesn't seem wise. You know, like, it seems like there's a prudence factor there that's not just preference. Uh, prudence and principles of Scripture. We, we're not going to do that ever, okay? Um, but then there are genuinely preference-based options. Um, God's glory is probably not a stake if Yodia chooses gray carpet and Syntyche really wants green, but Yodia is the one who's on leading the decorating committee, so she got to give the final say. Well, God will be, God's glory is still involved, even though it's just preference and personality that might guide that decision, but the actual choice doesn't really mean anything. It's really just preference and prudence, or preference and personality may be at stake. Um, There is a relationship between category three and category four issues, but the, the line between the two isn't as black and white as we want. It's more of a spectrum. So for example, um, the instrumentation that we use during our worship service should be guarded, guided by principles of scripture and prudence. But, you know, when there's one church member who insists on having a drum set and another church member who doesn't want a drum set and they actually say, and they're both claiming God wants this or God doesn't want this. You know, ancient Israel played a drum and, but also when Israel was worshiping the golden calf, it sounded like they were going to war, you know, so both of us are biblical. When really, when you look at their personal music preferences, you find that one person just really loves classical music and this other person really loves indie punk rock. You know, like it's just personality and preference that might guide that argument. Both claim to have the biblical high ground. Neither of them actually want um, historically Jewish sounding music in their congregational, you know, that is a normal flavor of their congregation. It's really principal. Uh, preference and personality that are guiding those decisions, Um, even though there are principles involved. We want to hear the congregation sing. Believe it or not, you can do that both with and without a drum, you know. So we have to be cautious against going to war with one another over these things that are really just all about me. Um, And we should be willing to give up things that are all about me. You know, this takes love. We'll talk about this next week. But I hope you can see why it's helpful to distinguish between kinds of disputed issues so that we can navigate them more rightly and more lovingly. When biblical principles and commands are actually at stake, you know, when it's a command, we can go to war over that. Um, When it's a principle, we need to like cautiously and provisionally hold our conclusion as we evaluate other parts of scripture. When it's just preference, we need to not please ourselves just as Christ did not please himself. Um, So we don't never hold a church hostage based on your preference is what I'm trying to say here. People do this. They say my preference is what God wants and actually I'm even going to say I'm the weaker brother here so you have to do what I want when it's not fitting into that category. That's not it. That's an abuse of the Bible and I think God would say just like he said to Job's friends you're obscuring my counsel even as you quote Bible verses. All right, we've got like two minutes. Any, anything you guys want to chase down here? All right, well, hopefully you will next week. 
Oh, t- Tyler. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to say that p- the New Testament authors are creating a countercultural community of witness, witness to the, the mission and kingdom and message of Christ. So as we become countercultural in our assembly, uh, we're going to be a different kind of community than the people out there. So very quickly, one way that Paul did this in Ephesians was he told husbands, sacrifice yourselves for your wives. Well, the culture said, wives, serve your husbands and sacrifice yourselves for them. So Paul's establishing Christian marriages that will be a countercultural community of witness that displays that the true way to lead is through sacrifice. The true way to um, demonstrate Christ-likeness is not to grab onto power, but to give it up. So you see how in like, that, that would be very countercultural, and that's countercultural in our day, believe it or not. Our day has a different cultural response, which is just shift power over to the other person. So if men had power for a long time, wives, now you take power. Well, that's not Christ's countercultural community of witness. We give up power to sacrifice and love. And it does make us very different, and it makes us not popular with anybody. You know, it doesn't make us popular with people hanging on to the old world system culture or the new world system culture. We're, we're caught in the middle and no one's going to like us. And, and that's okay because eventually they'll experience it because they'll experience the failures of the world's way of doing it. And, and then they'll be attracted to it. So that's a brief comment. I don't know if that helps, but. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't. Yeah, so, so let me say what we're not going to do, this, and then we'll end. We aren't constructing arbitrarily our own culture. We're, through the instructions of the New Testament, which almost never have, like, direct do this thing specifically. It's like love and forgive and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the world I grew up in said we need to create our own culture. So we're going to wear a certain kind of clothes. Men are not going to have hair that touches their ears. We're going to construct all of these things that make us just look so different because we don't want to look like the world. And what happens then is you construct a culture that actually is just like the world in a different time, in a different place, and it never actually transforms the heart. Our counterculture is a heart culture of transformation. So I want to warn against us saying, well, because something's popular out there right now, let's do the opposite of that. Because people have TVs in their home. To be a real Christian, let's get rid of all the TVs in our homes. No, use your TV differently. Don't, like, program yourself through it and binge watch TV until you fall asleep at night and wake up there the next day and don't watch pornography on your TV. Use your TV differently. That's how we'll be a different community. All right, um, good questions. Come next week, I'll summarize, and then we'll jump into more of this. Thanks.